Christians causing trouble in first century Thessalonica. What does that mean for us? We're going to talk about that, a whole bunch of things today. We're going to talk about some controversial topics and introduce our new season here on All Things to All People podcast. Let's do it. Welcome back to the All Things to All People podcast, officially season two as we roll on in. And we are starting a a new season, a new topic, a new book that we're going to focus on. And at the end of last season, which was only a week ago, If you have been listening and following along in the last few weeks, you'll know that uh, we had talked about, you know, where should we go? We've been going through the book, All Things to All People, for quite a while, 36 episodes, in fact, I believe. And so uh, where to go next? And I had thrown out two options, uh, culture, race, and kingdom. Uh, crossing the line, the book, and of course, escaping the beast, politics, allegiance, and kingdom, and left it up to, um, you know, a, a vote on our Facebook page for this podcast. And the I thought it would be close. It turned out to not be. It was about eighty-five percent that voted for the discussion of politics, allegiance, and kingdom, which was in one sense surprising, I guess in another sense not so much. There, There's still a uh, big hunger for that topic, and it does em- embrace uh, and envelop in some respects uh, both race and culture and the Bible and the kingdom. So we'll get all of those in there because this is really not – going to be a series about politics. It ultimately is going to be a series about the enormity of the kingdom of God. But, you know, you got to roll with it. When you get 85% of anything, uh, people voting for anything, that that's pretty rare to get <laughs> that definitive of a vote. Uh, you know, we have a pres- presidential election, as I record this, coming up in a couple days uh, when you hear this, it will be recently in the past, uh, and I'm pretty certain that there will not be 85% of the vote going to one of the candidates. So it's it's pretty rare, so you got to listen, you got to roll with it. So that's that's specifically why we're on this topic, and I am, even though in one sense, uh, like I feel like I've been talking about this book and about this topic all summer. And uh, there's part of me that would just absolutely love to go on to a different topic. Uh, I am excited about this one because I, I think it is, as I said, focused on the kingdom. And that's exciting to me. It's not uh, going, you know, we will get into the role of politics and engagement in the world and all that. But first and foremost, it is about the kingdom of God, which is amazing and enormous and 
if we talked about it every day, we wouldn't talk about it enough. Uh, and if it was the biggest, most, you know, just enormous, all-encompassing part of our life, it still wouldn't be big enough, and we still wouldn't understand it fully. And so I'm I'm truly excited uh, about that. Um, you know, for me, how did I come about writing this book? Why, you know, choose this topic at all? And uh, that's a good one because, so here's the thing. I, I grew up pretty politically minded in, in a lot of ways. And I, I was very engaged um, in that and from a per certain perspective and, um, you know, grew up very enmeshed and engrossed in politics, went to, you know, even as a young man, uh, 18, 19, 20, I was going to political lectures. I was volunteering uh, in, you know, to work at um, uh, on campaigns for politicians, both locally and nationally, and uh, you know, spent my time listening to talk radio and watching television shows and just immersing in politics, and that continued even after uh, being a Christian. And if I'm honest, I let my politics without meaning to or realizing it, I let that really drive the ship of my worldview. Even more so, now I wouldn't have said this for a long time or realized it, but I would have said, no, 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 no. Once I became a disciple, that's what drove my worldview, but it really didn't. It was really in the back seat in many respects. Uh, my following of Jesus was to my political worldview that I had, you know, immersed myself in. And so uh, the way I thought about dealing with the poor and the oppressed and immigrants and, uh, you know, people of other ethnic groups and inner city folks and, um, you know, people of different sexual orientation and whatever, I learned and thought about how to interact with those people based on my political worldview, which I had then enmeshed with and assumed was the biblical one, and then kind of interpreted the Bible through the lens of that. And so I was very convinced that what I believed, how I voted, what I did was, was godly. It was the only way to view things. It was the only biblical way to see it. And that's just, it was the right thing to do. And I had kind of merged uh, those two allegiances together and filtered my Christianity through this lens. And then uh, you know, really began to read more and more of the early Christians in the, the second and third and fourth century and see, wow, they live such radically different lives. Why? And studying and looking at how they lived and started to take note that, wow, they approached the world in a very different way. They approached engagement with uh, civic duty, with politics, all of that, they were saying things that I had never seen really before or never heard and uh, was deeply challenged by the way they approached life. And so that spurred me to go back and say, hmm, 
I need to look at the scriptures again. Maybe I have been filtering them, you know, almost reading them with colored glasses on and seeing everything, you know, with blue colored glasses and seeing everything as blue. And so I needed to go back and do some more study. And so upon doing that, uh, over the course of a year or two, I began, you know, and, and further, but especially in that first year or two, I just began to think, oh my goodness, I have been reading scriptures through the lens of my political ideology, of my national ideology, of all kinds of things, and, and changing the meaning without realizing it or knowing it because of what I expected to see, what I had been taught. And so what I needed to do was get rid of all that, go back to the scripture afresh and anew and hear it and say, man, how was Jesus challenging? How were the scriptures hitting these early Christians? What were they calling to? What was the kingdom? What is the kingdom? What is it calling us to be? And once I started to do that and take off those glasses and say, let me just start over, and maybe I'll wind up back in this spot, but I need to start over. And I realized that it was causing me to a whole new level of allegiance to Jesus, a whole new way of viewing the world. And so as my wife and I then, you fast forward many years, and I'm in the ministry now, and I'm a teacher in the church, and um, we were teaching a number of workshops on called Crossing the Line, Culture, Race, and Kingdom. And the more I get into that topic, the more I realize that constant questions would come up after our workshops when we do Q&A that would want to veer into the political realm. Well, how should we view politics? How should we vote? What is the role of politics? That sort of thing. And so I, I actually, for a while, started to include a little section, you know, seven or eight minutes on, you know, just a general overview of how I thought the early church viewed politics and what that meant for us, if we were going to view the scriptures in the same way that they did and then apply it to our world the way they applied it to their world. So it won't look exactly the same because our world is very similar in a lot of ways, but it is different. There are some significant differences as well. But how if we, if we use the same principles that they did, which were deeply scriptural, uh, and that they learned you know, very directly from apostles and people who knew the apostles and had learned under them without nearly the centuries of tradition and build up and, and nationalism and other allegiances and all those things. So uh, it was a, a solid, you know, much more solid uh, principles that they had that I could then, you know, test and say, hey, am I reading scripture correctly uh, or in, in a similar way that they did. Okay, that's a pretty good litmus test. And so tried to do that in a few minutes in the workshop and then um, just became convicted over time that, you know, there's a lot of Christians, well-meaning, brilliant, intelligent, faithful, sincere brothers and sisters who just have not had a lot of time to examine their political beliefs and the roots of them and go through history and 
understand where maybe some of these traditions came in from that were not exactly biblical, but were built up over time that maybe came from the 18th century or the 17th century or the 5th century. And so I spent a couple of years reading and studying, you know, every book on politics, especially politics and Christianity that I could. Um, probably, you know, I haven't counted, but well over 75 uh, at least, maybe closer to 100. The, the numbers are relevant. The point is just reading everything I could, reading numerous articles, listening to speeches and from from both sides and perspectives and uh, modern, you know, when I say both sides, I mean kind of the modern perspectives and then the ancient perspectives and went through the early church, went through the Puritan times and on up to today and then eventually began the process of uh, writing a book. And so, you know, you, you, my process for these books that I've written, especially Crossing Line, All Things to All People and Escaping the Beast, is to spend a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time studying, like I said, about two years for this book. And then, uh, you, you know, really pray and try to get an outline and get a sense of what I want to accomplish in the book. And unfortunately, one of the things that I've discovered over time is that as I write, I have to go through this process, even though I try to prep and do a great outline and avoid it, it's just become part of the process now where I will start a draft and go, no, I don't like it. And I'll start over and I'll, I'll try to pray again and I'll struggle through it and it'll go slow and just, I feel like I'm in a, in a fist fight and now it's just not right. And I got to start again and pray again and redo the outline and go over it again and again. And, and, uh, in some cases, I think, you know, I've trashed as many as 50 or 60 pages into a book and just said, no, this is not the right direction. And then I usually seem to get to a point where I'm just stuck and I start to wrestle, especially on this book. Like maybe I'm not supposed to write this. Maybe I just shouldn't do it. I kind of go back to God and say, hey, I, I resigned this commission. I think I misunderstood. I, I don't think I'm up to it, you know, and just get this pull of like, no, I want you to do this. Keep praying and I keep praying. And then the well just kind of breaks and it starts to hit and make sense and becomes clear and things come together and start to write it. And so that's kind of what happened with this book. And um, you know, it took me a few months of actual writing process then once I started on that last draft and got done and and uh just as a little little insight for my podcast audience, if you care, if you don't, then the next minute or so is gonna be fairly boring. But you know, usually uh once I get the writing process done. I feel pretty relieved. And there's a point where I'm like, I just want to send it in and kind of be done with this for a little while now. And then there's this whole process of uh, feedback and some rewrites. And, you know, and then it feels really good once you're done with that. You send it into the editor. And now they're just proofreading, editing, um, fact checking, that kind of stuff. And then when that's ready to go, they'll say, okay, here's some cover concepts. And normally I'm the type of person that I'm like, you know what, let's let talented people do what they do and I'm not going to meddle much 
hey, you, that that looks good. You know, they might give me a couple choices for a cover. I'll ask a few people that are kind of in my close circle and say, what do you think? And and just go with one of those covers. And they sent me three um, covers, which were, you know, all great stuff. And I looked at them and I sent them out to people and they were kind of like, yeah, you know, maybe this one. And it was a little bit of a split vote, a little leaning towards, well, I guess if I had to pick, I'd pick this one. And finally I just decided, you know what, it's just none of them are really hitting for me. And so for the first time, I kind of came back and said, you know, I'm I'm sorry, but I don't like any of those three. Um, You know, and as I was writing the email, just kind of this idea popped into my head. And I said, do you got, you know, anything, can we do kind of like a a Stephen King sort of feel? Like the, the mist or, you know, something like that, like the fog. And I don't even think it was an hour uh, the publisher sent me back the cover that now is the cover of Escaping the Beast. And I was like, that's it. I love it. Uh, that's what I want. And I actually have to thank uh, my publisher, and uh, Tony Mulholland at IPI, Illumination Publishing, um, because originally the title of this book was going to be Crossing the Line, Politics, Allegiance, and Kingdom as kind of a sequel, a direct sequel to Crossing the Line, Culture, Race, and Kingdom. And he came back pretty strongly and said, I don't think you should call it Crossing the Line. That's going to confuse people. And I was like, no, I think you're wrong, and I want to call it Crossing the Line. That's what I was thinking. And But, you know, this guys he's brilliant. He's been doing this for a long time. And so I said, well, you know what, I'll, I'll trust him. Okay. Um, and I kind of ran it by my wife, and she was like, yeah, I think you should pick something else. And so we, uh, again, there was a couple, I don't even remember now titles we were throwing back and forth and I didn't love any of them, but I'm like, eh, you know, the important thing is the book. And then as I was sending an email to say, well, let's just go with this other one. Um, the title escaping the beast just came into my mind. Um, and I was like, that's it. And I sent it and they emailed back and was like, yep, that's it. Let's go with that. So that's how we got the title. And, um, the the cover for the book and, and a little bit into my process of writing uh you, you may have found that really boring and you're like okay let's let's get on with uh the topic here at hand and so we will do that now i'm gonna do a little something different in this book than uh we than i did in uh, all things to all people in all things to all people. It was really a combination audiobook podcast. And if you listen, you know, I read the entire book and then would stop and comment. And if we, if I had a guest on, we would discuss it or, you know, whatever. I'm not going to do that. Um, with this book, I think with this book, what I'm going to do is read selected portions, um, you know, maybe respond to them at times and, and certainly continue to try to have some great guests on this season and interact with them. But that'll give more of an opportunity to have more in-depth discussions, I think, with people and hear some more of their thoughts and ideas as, as we have guests on. And then um, there is an audio version of this book that is available. And so, 
if you want just the strictly audio version, you can access that. And, um, you know, if you haven't read the book yet, you want to read it, you can purchase a, a copy of the book and read it. But so we'll, we'll definitely have some of the ideas, but we're not going to read through everything. We'll read through some excerpts and then talk about them or discuss them or add a little bit something uh, extra. So let me do read a section. We're going to look at the introduction of the, the book today. And uh, let me read starting in a section called Trouble in Thessalonica. As was his custom, Paul's first stop in most cities was the Jewish synagogue, where he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. His trip to Thessalonica was no different. He demonstrated through the scriptures that the true Messiah was different from what they had been expecting. He was not the mighty military leader they were hoping would unify them to throw off Roman oppression. Jesus was different. What proof did Paul have that Jesus was the promised Messiah? Well, that was interesting. Paul's evidence was that he willingly suffered and died on a Roman cross. Yes, he also declared that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. But he lost most Jews at the cross part. Most Gentiles thought that the resurrection was so absurd that that's where he lost them. In what was becoming an all-too-familiar response for people, Thessalonica broke out into enraged riots. The angry mobs, unable to find Paul, turned their wrath toward Jason, who had welcomed Paul and Silas into his home, and other new believers in the area. The scene must have been chaotic. The angry and riotous crowd pressed in on these believers who were barely dried off from their baptisms, ready to pour all their wrath down on them. These men have caused trouble all over the world, they screeched. Acts 17.6 But that was not the heart of their complaint. What crime had Paul and Silas committed? What had they done that had so agitated these Roman Jews? Romans were quite tolerant of other religions, so hearing another Messiah proclaimed should not have bothered them. Claiming that Jesus was the representative of God certainly would have angered Jews, but that doesn't seem to be their charge. Why were they so upset about a message that simply shared with people the good news that Jesus had died in their place for their sins, and because of that, if they would just believe, they could have their sins forgiven and go to heaven to be with God for eternity. The crowd's reasons for their angry response tell us much about the nature of the gospel that Paul was declaring. What was their response? Now, just before this in the introduction, I talk about the fact that in all the times I've studied the Bible with people and so on, uh, there's one response that I've never really heard. So it's helpful to know that as we move into the next section. But man, this scene in Acts 17 is uh, amazing when you think about how often uh, Paul was met with riots, with opposition, and so on. I actually think when he writes, you know, about a thorn in the flesh that he asked God to remove three times, if you go back to the Old Testament, that idea of a thorn in the side, thorn in the flesh, is is actually a phrase used several times in the Old Testament, and it usually referred to 
the enemies of God's people, uh, you know, opposition, the Canaanites, that sort of thing. And so Paul uses that phrase, and people for years have speculated, well, what does that mean? Is it a physical, um, you know, problem or malady or something like that? Was it his eyesight? Was it, you know, whatever? And we speculate. And we'll never know for sure, but my sort of reasoned guess is if that phrase in the Old Testament was often connected with opposition from enemies, then it makes sense to me that what Paul is talking about here is thorn in the flesh that keeps him constantly humble and turning to God and needing God and relying on God was the fact that everywhere Paul went, he was opposed. There was riots. There was persecution. He was thrown in prison. He's like, God... This doesn't seem to be happening to everyone else, uh, you know, occasionally, but it always happens to me. Why? And that's the question, isn't it? Why was there such opposition? Let's read the next section. There is another king. It's time to get back in our time machine and return to the present day. What is the response that I've never heard when studying the Bible with people. I've never once heard of anyone getting angry after hearing about Jesus and declaring this message as treasonous. But that is precisely what the people of Thessalonica claimed. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. Hmm. They've caused trouble all over the world, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. Acts 17, 6 through 7a. But wait for it. Here comes the real trouble. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Acts 17, 7b. Saying there is another king? Defying Caesar's decrees, this sounds like a revolution. But there was no army, no political organization, no rebellion. Wasn't this just a spiritual message about forgiveness of sin and receiving Jesus as one's personal savior? Couldn't they accept Jesus as the center of their new religious beliefs and then be free to support whatever governmental system or ruler they wanted? Wouldn't becoming a Christian make them a better citizen? Perhaps... We have come to understand the gospel very differently from how our first century brethren did. In fact, if we fully understood the gospel message in a way that would cause us to think it was downright treasonous, might that change radically the way we think about and approach the topic of politics in the 21st century? This is serious stuff. Few things in life can be as divisive and rouse our passions as can politics. I have seen disciples walk away from their fellowship over matters that were strictly political. I've seen disciples stop interacting or even speaking to one another because of their differences in political ideology. Some disciples of Jesus are deeply political and become extremely passionate about their beliefs, even to the point of creating divides within the body of Christ. Can this be what God wants for the people of his kingdom? On the other end of the spectrum are disciples who have turned their faith into an exercise of piety, spurning any involvement in politics whatsoever. This may sound spiritual, but can a faith 
that has nothing to say about the injustices and inequities of the world really be what Jesus had in mind with the kingdom of God? These are questions that we must wrestle with. Should we embrace politics in the church? Doesn't that open us up to inherent divisions that will constantly separate us? Should we avoid politics completely? But can we be comfortable with a political approach that, were we living in the 19th century, would keep us out of the fray and comfortable with not commenting on or fighting against a political evil like slavery? Who should we vote for in the next election? Should we vote at all? What if we live in a country that doesn't have legitimate elections? What then should be our approach? I think there is an analogy here that uh, can be helpful moving forward that I want to kind of throw out there at the beginning of this series. I want you to think about a young married couple, fairly newly married, and they're married now. The husband has a new job. He has a a large number of coworkers that he will see every day, Um, uh, you know, very in very close uh, proximity, close interaction, uh, both male and female. How is he going to approach that situation, particularly with his female coworkers? What is going to be his worldview and approach? Now, let's say he had a similar job a couple years beforehand, but at that time, he was not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, and he was not married. At that time, he approached work, you know, professionally, but also he interacted with his female co-workers in a, with a different perspective. If he flirted a little bit, That was okay as long as they were okay with it. And I'm not getting into the realm of sexual harassment or, you know, inappropriate behavior or anything like that. But he might, you know, he would just approach it in general differently. His physical proximity, maybe after work, if they said, hey, let's go hang out. He might uh, have intimate conversations with these people. He might find himself uh, connected with some of the his female co-workers emotionally and, and really become close friends and hang out with them and maybe maybe date them and maybe even um, get to the point where he slept with one of them. And that, that all is what it is. By the world standards, no real problem there as long as there was consent and mutuality and no abuse of power or anything like that. But now this young man has become a disciple and he's married. How does he approach the workplace? Does he just go in and say, okay, my goal here is to not have sex with another woman. Anything other than that is okay. As long as I don't have sex with another woman, success. I have not committed adultery. But would his new bride want him to go and have the same sort of physical proximity, you know, allow female co-workers to touch his shoulder or give him uh, a neck massage or, you know, go out for drinks or 
flirt a little bit or have fun, you know, after work or kiss or any, any of those sorts of things. No, because she would expect that he would have an allegiance to her that would impact everything he did at work. Now, of course, there's an allegiance to Jesus as well, and I'm, that's a big part of the picture, but I'm just going to focus in on the marriage part right now. He would go in and how he conversates with people the opposite sex should be uh, factored in by his allegiance to his wife. That's going to have an impact. The, the physical proximity, that's going to have an impact. Physical touch, that's going to have an impact. Who he goes out with, who he's alone with, how he interacts, the, the le level and depth and intimacy of conversations, all of that is going to be determined by that foundational allegiance to his wife. It's not just a matter of, well, mission accomplished because I didn't have sex. And so that's going to help him, and I'm, I'm sure that's what his wife would expect. Like, I don't have to give you a list of rules. I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to say, you know, you can have this kind of conversation with other women, but not this kind of conversation. You can have this kind of physical contact or physical proximity, but not this. If I have to get to that level, then there's a problem. But your allegiance should be, man, and everything I do, I'm going to remain loyal and faithful to my wife, not just in one big culminating act of fornication, <laughs> not that, but in every little thing I do. See, my worldview now has uh, of this young man is shifted by that declaration and commitment to that allegiance. Everything, every little action moving forward is impacted by that decision. It changes his world in every way imaginable. You following me? I think that's a picture of the sort of allegiance that is going to be needed from us to the kingdom of God moving forward. And that then will color, picture, change, impact everything else that we do moving forward is our allegiance to Jesus. Let me read one more section from the introduction. It's a section called In This Book. In this book, I will seek to first lay out in section one a comprehensive examination of the scriptural worldview of the kingdom and how that calls us to approach our discipleship and our place in the world. There's that idea of allegiance. In section two, I will consider the role of nations and the politics of the nations and where the kingdom of God stands in those domains. How do I interact with, you know, and think about those other things, uh, things other that will vie for my allegiance. And in section three, I'll look at the more practical elements of how a Christian community should navigate through the murky waters of worldly politics and specific issues. We will work hard to ensure that Jesus is our guide throughout the journey. 
The third section will take the identity that I have attempted to describe and show it lived out in the real world. The first section is like running on a paved trail. The footing is secure and stable. As we move into the second section, we move to a dirt trail cut through a forest. The route is a bit more winding and less sure than the pavement, but still quite secure and straightforward. By section three, we are running through a swamp. The path is not set, and the ground is often unsure, but we move forward trying to find our way as best we can. Because the third section is an attempt to apply principles in concrete situations, there is more room to disagree. Each topic broached in section three could be its own book. I've attempted to introduce an approach to each subject without being so brief that it is unhelpful or counterproductive. My goal in that section is not to provide the absolute answer, but to show how we might work our way through difficult and thorny topics with a kingdom-minded approach. At no time, however, do I want to give the impression that I have all the answers or even that we will be able to find clear and concise answers to every question that might arise. These are complex topics. The best that we can hope for is to find kingdom principles that will point us in certain directions with the clear understanding that we may not always come to the same conclusions. I do not imagine that this book is the final word on the role of Christians in politics. It is intended to be part of an ongoing conversation. I'm writing this book for today's environment. Were I writing in the next generation or to another time and context, I might need to rethink some of the specific applications of principles I will suggest. The benefit of principles is that they can be applied in any context. The challenge of principles is that we constantly need to rethink and relearn how to best apply them. I do believe, however, that if we establish a clear and accurate vision of what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom of God, that this will demystify much for us and make the way much smoother. I'm convinced that many of our political divisions find their roots in the fact that we tend to not have a solid understanding of God's kingdom. That is why we will start from there and move out to questions of politics in the world. If we can agree on the kingdom and have that as the most important element in our lives, I believe the fissures between us will become much, much smaller and easier to, to traverse. The importance of followers of Jesus finding a common direction in our political engagement is difficult to overstate. My own context as an American illustrates this well. My country has entered a time that is significantly divided politically. That partisanship has spilled over into the church in ways that are unprecedented, in our lifetime at least. In many respects, it has handcuffed the church, preventing it from filling one of the most important roles that it should be playing in society. I don't believe that the church was formed by Jesus to serve as ruler over the nations or as a power broker, taking over countries and societies and directing them through legislation, political might, or any other means available. We are to be the light. We are to be an alternative. We are to be a picture of what it looks like to represent God's character through community in the world. And we are to invite people to join us in that vocation. That means that we will operate with the identity of an alternate way of being human, serving as a contrast to the world around us. But it also means that we must be able to serve in a prophetic function by pointing out when the cultures around us have strayed from the life-giving role of image bearers that God wants for all humans. 
And herein lies the problem. Would followers of Jesus yoke themselves to partisan political agendas, philosophies, or parties, we no longer operate as a true alternative, nor can we fulfill the prophetic function. If I were to stand up today and criticize the Republican Party, one of its politicians, or the conservative political ideology as straying from God's character in a particular situation, in a particular situation, I would be roundly criticized and attacked by half of the church that ascribes to that side of the aisle. The opposite is also true. Were I to criticize some aspect of liberal or democratic philosophy or individuals from that party, I would be attacked by Christians who have accepted that side of the aisle as their team. In short, we cannot fulfill an important aspect of the church's role because we have yoked ourselves with things that are not of the kingdom of God. Now, there's a bit of hyperbole in in that last paragraph in the sense of that I, I don't believe nor have I experienced that half of the church you know, first of all, it's not exactly half. Who knows? It varies by congregation. But that half of the church would attack. I think even if half the church leaned one way and half the other way, you probably have about a 5% extreme on either end that's really going to uh, be vocal and attack and complain and get their toes stepped on and scream and holler about a kingdom perspective. Back to the reading. That is not to imply that these issues are simple to discuss or resolve. They are not. This book is not intended to be the answer. My intent is to initiate a conversation. Many will disagree with some of what I write here. I'm okay with that. I write what I write out of love for God's kingdom and a desire for it to be all that it can be. There are some who love God's kingdom as much as I do, and we still will not agree on everything. That too is okay. Conversations in love can be highly productive. When addressing the deep cultural differences among believers in Rome, Paul advises them, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God, Romans 14, 22. Before he says that, though, Paul spent nearly 14 chapters showing them how they need to transform their minds and embrace the fullness of the kingdom. If they've done that, then the gaps between them will be small enough, and they'll be able to process their differences so that simply keeping it to themselves would be a plausible solution. Without all the work that leads up to it, though, I don't believe it will be tenable or practical. I also need to add that politics is a broad topic, and it varies widely from region to region, country to country, continent to continent. It would be virtually impossible to address this topic in a way that is considerate and fair to every possible political context, concern, and situation. Yet, the body of Christ is present in nearly every nook and cranny of the globe. With that in mind... I will stick mostly with the context that I know best, that of the United States of America, but I will attempt to do so only to serve as illustration and not with the view that this is the only political situation that matters. My hope is to use the context, to use our context, as a jumping off point to apply biblical principles that can then be utilized and adjusted to each political situation as similar or as dissimilar as your context as your context may be to your own so there we go that's a a little bit of the introduction to the series where we're going to head what we're going to try to accomplish i hope you will stay with us uh for the whole journey um and and be part of the conversation if you have questions or input uh please do 
hit me at all things to all people podcast at gmail.com. If you want to buy any of the resources, including the book Escaping the Beast, you can get them at michaelburnsteachingministry.com. Uh, please go there. Please uh, like us on the Facebook page if you haven't done that already. And and maybe I need to step into the new uh, new generation and, and get an Instagram or Twitter or something like that for this podcast. I'll think about that. I know those are the places to be. Not my comfort zone there. Not loving them, but... Eh, maybe we'll do it. We'll see. I'll let you know uh, what we do with that. So thanks for joining me. All Things to All People podcast season two. See you on the next episode.